You're listening to Manner of Speaking with Greg Mayu. Today's episode Tomorrow There's More Movies. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is part one in a series on people who work or have worked as film projectionists. That's actual shutter spinning projectors running actual celluloid film, a rare thing in this digital age. For our first interview, we turn to Scott Hart. As a struggling underground cartoonist, Scott's had many day jobs. Dishwasher, busboy, bartender, butcher, prop builder, furniture salesman, karaoke host, um, museum security guard, just to name a few. But with the exception of maybe being an MC at a strip club, I think the job he looks back on with the most fondness is being a projectionist at his hometown theater when he was just entering high school. I was growing up in a small town in the Midwest, uh, which was called Geneseo. And we had a hometown theater in Geneseo. It had been there for many, many years, and for, for decades it was extremely poorly managed and maintained. Like, it was a real hellhole. Like, peeling paint and radiators, and just it was just a nightmarishly, disastrously ugly little theater. So this guy, uh, who I'm not going to mention by name, who is on the board of a local bank, decides that he's going to buy the theater, and he's going to renovate it. The theater was called the Central Theater. And he renovates the theater and does it beautifully. Like, the theater is gorgeous. It is a single-house movie theater, you know, capable of showing, uh, at the time, full anamorphic widescreen films. He put in a decent sound system. And I think the way that it went is, is that he put an ad in the paper saying that he was seeking projectionists. And the theater was a real novelty because there was nothing in our area. Like the nearest decent theaters were 30 or 40 miles away. And in our specific little community, our theater was unusually good. So a couple of guys applied for this job. And one was me. And the other one was this guy that lived down the street from me whose name was Jim. And Jim and I had both been shooting home movies together. He and I were making model kits and blowing up tanks and using baking soda for snow and all this other stuff. So we were able to go in with all this enthusiasm. And we're just, this is 1981. And, you know, we are kids that are just entering high school. And just, we immediately got the jobs. Before we get too far into the story, I just want to give a heads up that Scott does spoil the plot of one movie in this interview. So if you've never seen the film Chariots of Fire, be warned. So um, I got the job at the local theater and I became a projectionist and I learned all of my basics on 
assembling a film and you know splicing stuff and things like that and his film projector uh, is a very unique design for a 35 millimeter in-house film projector because what it was is it's on this large stem and then it has a huge box on top that houses the lamp and then in front you have all of your um, gears and gates and then you have your projection lens now the stem on the bottom has this enormous spindle and on the center of the spindle are two huge reels i mean easily about four maybe four and a half feet in diameter maybe five and so when movies came in you could take the reels out cut off the heads and the feet attach them to this main reel and then reel up the entire film on this one giant spool and then as you thread it up through the projector it had a balancing arm that uh, weighed the tension and that was how the machine knew how fast to turn the wheel of the spindle it was not butterfly platters it was not two separate projectors with different gates that you would open or close simultaneously while going from one reel to another it was actually a very unique design it was not a common setup but it was extremely practical because a movie would come in, you could assemble the entire film, add your trailers, whatever else you want, run the film for the audience, and then at the end of the night, just hit rewind. And you rewind the entire film back. So after showing, you know, very easily that I understood how this all works and putting together a film and how to open and close the business and things like that, I eventually got full run of the place. Like I got the keys, he was no longer coming in and even checking up on me and I was running all the movies at Jim and I together. We were running films by ourselves and this was like, you have to remember that it's 1981. I'm probably about, I don't even know if I was 16 yet and suddenly I have the whole theater to myself. So this means every, the, whole, the whole theater is all mine. It's a, um, we could do anything that we wanted. When Raiders of the Lost Ark played, the boss had given us specific orders. He said, when you assemble that print, he goes, I want you to view it. He goes, I want to, I want to make sure everything runs, nothing's out of order, because that, that very often happened. We had multiple problems. I remember when we got the film Gandhi, and Gandhi was huge. Like, we could barely fit it on our reels. In the initial premiere of the film, the theater owner had invited all these like famous dignitaries from the town, like priests and clergymen and stuff, to come see Gandhi. And then about a third of the way through the film, people were running out saying, I've seen this film, this isn't how it goes. This is, this is completely out of order, and we had to fix that, which was a nightmare. Anyway, going back to my original story. So my friend and I, one afternoon, he and I are alone in the theater. We're drinking Dr. Peppers, we're eating sugar babies, we assemble Raiders of the Lost Ark, proceed to sit down in the theater, and we're watching the film and everything. And then it occurs to me at one moment that, well, no one's around. So if I want to, I can go get up and walk on the stage. So there's all these moments where they're in the Cairo marketplace and I was walking around the stage and I'm like, can you see me? Can you see me? Do I look like one of the people up there? Stuff like that. That was, this was very exciting before the internet. In the basement of the theater, I'll never forget this. He had this table on the table about a foot and a half to two and a half feet high off the surface of the table, all one sheets from the 60s and 70s. 
and also an endless supply of Pressbooks. And what a Pressbook is, is a Pressbook has all of the ads that are going to run in the local newspaper, but in addition to all the ads, it has fake filler articles that are made specifically for, for newspaper reproduction that if you're cozy with the local paper, if they have space they need to fill, they can run these articles. So I had piles and piles of these press books, film catalogs from the 60s and 70s, first run posters that were just, just incredible. And, you know, he had said, you know, if there was anything there that we wanted to take, we were welcome to it and stuff like that. But he really had no idea how much we had gotten a hold of. I actually wound up taking my bedroom and movie postering my entire bedroom, floor and ceiling, everything. And it wasn't until years later that I actually had a friend over because I had never gave it a whole lot of thought. But um, I, my friend walked into my room and he's like, wow, check out all this. This is great. I'm like, oh, you think so? Yeah, these are just posters I picked up. So he goes, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that, that Raging Bull poster you got there. And he started pointing out to me that, you know, I had Raging Bull 1941, Blues Brothers. I had all these first run posters that, you know, were not easy to get your hands on. And I was, I had them all like stuck up with like thumbtacks and things like that. But anyway, okay, um, so uh, what were some of your favorite posters that you had up? Do you remember like the ones that were on the ceiling or the ones that were on the, by the door or anything like that? Oh, I mean, yeah, I can think of a couple. I had a Road Warrior poster. The Road Warrior poster is magnificent. If you've ever seen the, the original domestic release poster for the Road Warrior, I loved that poster. It, it's just absolutely gorgeous. It's, it, it's, it's very exciting, very eye-catching. I had a Raiders of the Lost Ark poster that I liked. I mean, this, this will tell you about the era and where I was at in my life, too, that these are the posters I was grabbing. Because I could, I could have been grabbing, uh, you know, I could have had a, a one-sheet for the French Connection. I could have had a one sheet for all the president's men and stuff like that. But no, I'm grabbing the Blues Brothers and Star Wars and stuff like that. So um, I worked at the theater and abused all my privileges as much as possible. And the guy that ran it was, I mean, he was such a... Uh, you know, he was a hard drinking, you know, like he was this big character around town and this is kind of like a, an appearance. He kind of looked like a cross between Sidney Greenstreet and Russ Meyer. You know, he was kind of a scoundrel and everything, kind of a cad and, and like there were a lot, there were plenty of people that didn't like him and stuff like that. And he would, he would also, he would booze it up a lot, a lot. And he had a pet dog that ran around the theater. And anyway, he had this amazing setup because in the booth, he not only had the main projector, he also had a Super 8 projector that had this enormous xenon bulb casing in the back so you could show Super 8 films. But what he was known for locally is he had a slide projector. And the slide projector also had this mega lamp housing in the back of it so it could project on this, and this movie screen. And the way that it worked when you came to see a movie in Geneseo is you'd sit down in the theater and there would already be images on the screen. He would take photos of local events, local people, but he would take photos of their trips. He would, he would stand up there with a microphone and he was all boozed up and he'd be telling his stories about, you know, this is us in Greece and you know, they're beautiful people, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he'd end that and I'd run the movie and he'd go home. Two funny things about that I remember. One is, is that he's got thousands and thousands of these slides and they're all in these carousels. And um, because this guy is the guy that he is, 
and because he behaves the way that he is, lo and behold, at one point, there's a slideshow going on with a whole house full of people sitting there watching slides of, you know, scenes from last winter or like maybe a high school football game. Suddenly up on the screen pops some nudie cutie from the 50s stepping out of a pool. Some like busty hot, <laughs> busty Jane Russell-like hot chick. I was somewhere else in the theater when it happened, and then he had to rush up and quickly get it off the screen, and he couldn't get mad at me. I mean, he kind of sort of was like, well, you should check those things. It's like, well, I can't check all the slides. I mean, I don't know. You know, it was his thing. He threw it in there. The other thing, the other funny thing is that I remember, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, is that, because this guy was really, really, a real blowhard, real local personality. Well, we showed the film Chariots of Fire. This is a story of two men who run, not to run, but to prove something to the world. They will sacrifice anything to achieve their goals, except their honor. This guy decided, and I'm not making this up at all, this guy decided that since in the film Chariots of Fire, everyone speaks with a British accent, that the people in our Midwestern town might have a little trouble understanding what they're saying in the film. So he decided that before the movie would start, he would get on the microphone and tell everyone what the film was going to be about, which he did. And I don't mean he said this is going to be a, a film about long-distance runners and their relationships and things like that. I mean he proceeded to tell the entire plot to the end. And I'll never forget him actually saying the words towards the end of his speech where he, he went... He, he went <clears throat> Both runners go on to win their respective races. And I looked out the window of the booth and there was one guy in the crowd and he threw his arms out like this and he put his head against his hand and he shook his head back and forth like he can't believe he just paid a ticket to see a film that a guy just ruined for him. Some of the other things that went along with working at the at the projectionist was I learned the value of stealing frames from films. Because when you have to cut off heads and tails of films, you invariably get to a point, because these things go from theater to theater all across the country, you get to the point where you're actually cutting into the print itself. And it didn't take me long to figure out, hey, wait a minute, if I'm cutting off a little bit of the film here, and that's a frame that I can keep, and I'm alone at night in the theater while the whole movie's rewinding, all I have to do is know what scene I'm looking for in a film, and I can take frames. I collected frames from everything. I cut frames out of Star Wars, Raiders of Lost Ark, Tron, Road Warrior, comedy films, anything with tits. I mean, I, I, it was, I would, if you saw a film in the 80s and there was a really good scene and there was an abrupt cut, I'd like to apologize in advance because I was one of many guys that, that, um, the funny thing is, is that we had an anamorphic adapter for the front of the projector and um, I didn't realize that a lot of these frames I'd be taking home, they'd be, you know, unanamorphosized. So they'd be all slender and I'd be like, I can't really enjoy this tit shot. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Luke, Han, and the Princess's story didn't end with the destruction of the Death Star. 
it continues in The Empire Strikes Back. My friend Jim and I, when we ran the movie The Empire Strikes Back, which he and I had already seen at a local big city theater, he and I got this brilliant idea that we were going to scratch into the film Empire Strikes Back and add our own laser shots. That's what we were going to do. Never did it, though. Never did it. Couldn't get up the nerve. Really wanted to do it. It's. I kind of regret that we didn't do it because it would just be cool to take a friend to see the film and say, yeah, you see that? You said that? I, I did, did that. But never happened. Okay. I was shooting a lot of films in high school and I would get these great gigs doing films for classes because if you go to a teacher in a high school class and you say, hey, for my final project, can I shoot a film? They just, you know, you got it. So my friend, who I worked with at the theater, I helped him shoot a film. It was Super 8, and it was this like science fiction adventure film. I think it was for his mythology class. And it was about these guys who like fly to this planet, and they, they're searching for life, and it turns out that they're actually walking on top of some, some giant that actually comes awake and winds up chasing them or something like that, and then they leave, and, and that was about it. So the owner of our theater let us show the movie to a packed house of people that had all come to see something like E.T. And this was amazing. It's one of the nicest, most generous things this guy ever did. He, he goes, I have a treat for you folks tonight. We're going we're gonna to show you a film made by two local guys. So anyway, he shows the film, and, and he's doing it on his Super 8 projector, and it looks surprisingly good on the screen, and there's music soundtrack to go with it and everything. And he told us to go stand down by the two rear exit doors of the theater. And so he runs he runs the whole film, and the, the audience loves it and everything. And he goes, ladies and gentlemen, it's been brought to my attention that a limo has pulled up to the front of the theater, and both... Me and uh, me, my name's Scott, and this guy Jim are here, and he has us walk out to the crowd waving our hands while shining a spotlight on us. And I mean, like, we're guys in our teens. It was like, it was, it was just such a blast. It was such a good time. For more Scott's stories from the projection booth, be sure to check out the later episodes in this series. All of Scott's stolen film frames were thrown out by an ex-girlfriend and his posters and press books were thrown out by his parents. Yeah, I think it's like a, this oddly romanticized job for whatever reason. I think, you know, there's, you know, Cinema Paradiso or like Fight Club and like all these things, people have these concepts of like either this romantic figure or this kind of like isolated guy in a booth somewhere. That's Joe Stankus, a filmmaker based in New York who works as a projectionist at the IFC Center. Despite the fact that the IFC still runs actual film prints, or maybe because of it, Joe says the romance of the job tends to wear thin when you've been doing it long enough. The history of the projectionist is like, you know, it used to be like a lot of like World War II vets who just like worked 12 hours a day. I'm pretty sure they were all deaf and probably mostly blind. And uh, I think they were all really messed up dudes, man. And they were more than happy to sit in a dark room and talk to no one and watch, you know, movies for 12 hours a day. I try to get out and see daylight because uh, I feel like I need that. But I'm probably one of the more social projectionists that works in my theater. I think the other ones kind of disappear. There's a bit of an upstairs, downstairs vibe going on.
in this time now where where actual physical film is more or less on the way out, especially as an exhibition medium. And people romanticize that. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people, even people I work with are like, they don't want us to go see a movie that's digital projection or like they don't want to see DCP. I want to see a print and I want to see that. And then I've kind of gotten over a lot of that. I feel like handling it and just being around it. And I know that it's a fucking pain in the ass in many ways. And it's better in some ways. I'm not, you know, I have nothing. I, I would like to see a new 35 millimeter print of a movie as much as the next guy, but. What's, uh, what's your least favorite part of the job? Uh, I mean, you're a cog. You're just a, a part of a machine. And every once in a while that becomes like very apparent that there's that like modern times Charlie Chaplin image of like him being sucked up into this thing. Like, because I'm just running back and forth between movies all day, starting this movie, stopping this movie. I'll always be like, I'll walk into the one of the booths and like hear something coming out of one of the monitors, part of the movie being played. And that'll always like kind of re- I'll remember that. Basically, I've noticed that I've always walked into the same part of the movie every time. And so I think, even though I think I have free will and I'm just like walking around the booth in my breaks, when I hear the same thing over and over again, I realize that I am just following the same path that I've followed like for the, the entire week. I don't know, it was like a weird, kind of like existential moment I had when I was like, oh my God, my path is being guided for me. I've done the same thing. I keep coming in to this room at 5.14 every day. And so that was that's a tough pill to swallow sometimes when I'm just like, I realize that I'm just on the schedule, even when I think I'm on a break. I'm, I am a cog. And it just never ends. It's not like you work in a job where it's like a bunch of stuff comes in and you finish it and it's over. Or like, hey, we, we finished the movie. Or like, hey, we baked all the bread for the day and it's done. And it's just tomorrow there's more movies. And then after that, there's more movies. Like, just repeating a task over and over again is just, like, that will cause you to go insane. Uh, And then, like, do that in, like, a dark, loud room. That can get, like, a little much sometimes. You know, you you are a projectionist. You are controlling these machines. But sometimes you just realize that you're just another machine and something's controlling you. And whether you know it or not, you're just another button that's being pressed. You can hear more from Joe in the rest of this series. Be sure to check out his films online. I recommend his short doc, Marquee. You can find them on Vimeo.com.